Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to <clears throat> A Journey Through Shimona Esrei. You can find this on my podcast, Accessing Your Best Self. This is episode three, I believe. So we'll begin with a little poem that I I don't believe is of Jewish origin. I didn't have time to Google it, but um, it says what we need to hear. And that is how important it is, how central to feel our prayer should be in our everyday. It's called Take Time to Pray. I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish, I didn't have time to pray. Troubles just tumbled about me, and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. He answered, you didn't take time to ask. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided. Why, child, you didn't knock. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me. He said, my child, you didn't seek. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. Just again, I I checked again with Rabbi Lowy. I just wanted to be sure. that for women, um, we only have a few moments for prayer, which of course many of us have a lot more time than we're used to. Mm -hmm. So we can really take this time during this winter and the fact that we're going into lockdown a little bit here in Toronto to really develop ourselves and our uh, skill, and it really is a skill, of tefillah and one of the major principles is that the more preparation the more we understand the words that we're saying the more we naturally develop or just it's almost like a gift that we're given kavana we're given mindfulness intention direction our prayers are directed and um, this is very important so my point is is that if a woman only has a little bit of time to pray, the first thing that she should pray is the Shemona Esrei. Because as I said, Shemona Esrei is zut This is what is called tefillah. All the other davening, all the other prayers that we do are all just leading up. They're all getting us in the mood. They're helping us to prepare ourselves to stand in front of Hashem with the Shemona Esrei. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, the psuke de Zimra, the verses of song or praise that come before the Shemona Esrei, the word Zimra, song, is the shorish of the word is lizamer, which means to prune. You know, I worked on kibbutz for many months, and I used to get the job of pruning. You had to sort of, you know, if you were in the peaches, you had to get rid of the buds so that the peaches would be able to grow bigger and not be crowded by all the buds. But the idea of pruning is to remove. And song 
And the prayers leading up to Shona Esrei are supposed to remove the barriers that exist between us and Hashem because of our physical nature and sort of open us up and, and um, get rid of all the chaff so that we can become more open and ready to approach Hashem, so to speak, one-to-one, -one, right? We talked about it in earlier classes, how we're literally facing east towards Jerusalem, And just like the Kohen Gadol would go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim once a year on Yom Kippur, at the holiest place where heaven and earth meet, so too, whenever we stand in Shemona Esri, we're reenacting that. And our prayers are literally going to the main post office and, and we can envision them going straight between the Keruvim, the boy and the girl, that angels that stand on top of the place where the tablets were kept in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. And that's where you're actually supposed to imagine that your words are going when you dub in the words of Shemona Esrei. So Rav Shimshon Pincus, Zecher Tzadik Livracha, in his Sefer Sha'arim B'Tfilah, <clears throat> He says that tefillah is like air for the neshama. Its life actually depends on it. Tefillah is the essence of life in this world. It connects a Jew to Hashem, who is the source of all life. So how do we prepare properly for tefillah? So in Rabbi Pincus's book, he, he says we should have three thoughts before we take our three steps forward or when we're taking our three steps back. The first one is Hashem is listening to me. He's real. I think he gives an analogy of let's say you're talking to your neighbor and you don't see each other. Your neighbor's on the other side of the fence. She's working in her garden. You're working in your garden and you're having a conversation. It's very, very difficult for us to imagine God listening to us because you don't see him. You know, I always used to say Christianity is so much easier because they, they make physical statues. Right. You know, Lenu, it's a Vodazara, according, it's idol worship, according to our religion. But it's so much easier to relate to a God that you can see, or at least that's made into something visual. We don't have that. We have to recognize the creator behind everything that he created. <clears throat> Just as we would understand an artist by the paintings that they paint. We have to seek and look and think into things and imagine, use our power of imagination to understand that God is real and he's listening. The second idea is that Hashem is above everything, that he's beyond this world. And yet we are going to be <clears throat> able to engage in conversation with him. And the third thing to come in front of Hashem with is this concept of that I am very, very small. I am nothing compared to Hashem. <clears throat> and so we come, like we said with that first line, Hashem spasai tiftach, ufi yagid tihilatecha, Hashem open up my mouth to be able to declare your praises. Because we understand, if we would really understand the awesomeness of being in the presence of the king and daring to open up our mouth, to let alone 
offer praises, like we said, like a puny ant telling you how great you are and not even being able to comprehend with an ant's mind, so to speak, the true greatness of a human being, so too we can get a taste of what it means for us to come and try to declare who Hashem is. But that's what we're meant to do. And so that smallness, that that smallness is actually supposed to make us feel um, an incredible sense of God's presence, much like the way we feel it when we, you know, hike to the top of a mountain or we sit at night with the stars out, you know, on the beach or if, you're, if you've ever been camping and feel your smallness. It's actually a very um, inspiring and pleasurable feeling because it's like you're really in reality. And most of the time we walk around, as, as I said, why do I pray to God to remember I'm not God? Because most of us come into this world, or we all come into this world, thinking that we are the center of the universe. And the goal of prayer is to become less self-centered and more God-centered, to get oneself into reality. So how do we, another way to acquire kavana, this is just an interesting thing. Of course, you know that when men daven, or maybe some of you too, one of the Jewish ways of davening, first of all, we said in Judaism, we stand upright, that man is supposed to stand upright because that's how he was created. He has the ability to look up very easily as opposed to animals that are on all four. And um, we shuckle. Right? Everybody knows that word, le shuffle, to shuffle, the heat la shuffle. I don't know where it came from, but we shuffle. And the idea of that is that when you get your physical body sort of excited or moving, it has an influence on your internal self. You're arousing your passion and emotion. Now, there are people who stand stiff and straight when they dub in. I mentioned Rav Moshe Feinstein was once in a situation where you know, is in Russia somewhere, some guard or something was threatening him and he had to stand at attention. And for the rest of his life, he stood like that for Shimona Esrei. And there are people who dafka stand like that to show their awe and fear of God. But the idea of shuckling, again, is to arouse the body, to become more passionate and inflamed by your, and this is very interesting, when you go forward in the shuckling, it's like you're, you're expressing your love right? You're inflamed by your love of God. But we know what happened to Nadav and Avihu, who loved God just a little bit too much, right? So then we go back. That's the shuckling, right? We go back to remember part of this relationship with God is not just the love, but we have to acquire fear, awe, trepidation, recognition of the tremendous power and strength of God in terms of, you know, that he can do anything at any moment. And, and so we, 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 we go forward for the, for the love and back for the fear. And that, I once heard that explanation. I thought it was really, really beautiful. Very, very interesting. Because, of course, we know that before you can get to love of Hashem, you must first understand fear of Hashem. A lot of people skip that level right? They just want to go right to the love. 
but we know that we need both in order to have a proper relationship, much like a child with a parent. We know that if the relationship's too chummy, the parent loses their authority. You know, if parents try to be friends with their kids, I want her to like me. I want him to like me. I once heard somebody say, let your children hate you for the first 20 years of their life, and then they'll love you for the next 20 years. But if they are crazy about you the first, whatever. I mean, it's, it's a little bit extreme, but the point is this, that you, you don't want to make yourself too chummy because then you lose your authority. Unfortunately, we live in a generation where, you know, I don't know, I went to this open concept high school. We had, we, we had to call our teachers by their first names, which was really weird for me. And of course, in Israel, calling your parents by your first name, I remember being on kibbutz, everybody did that. So the whole breakdown of the generation and that kind of awe-inspired relationship is something that, you know, is very much a part of, our, of, of the generation's that have broken down that we are a part of. But so that's why fear for us is so difficult, but it's so necessary in order to have a proper relationship with Hashem. Okay, another tip for Kavana, say the word slowly and out loud. Now, Shimona Esri, of course, we're not supposed to say out loud. We learned from Hana, Hana, who was, um, I believe she was a Nevi'ah, not sure if she was one of the, not sure. But anyway, she was a great woman. And Hannah, we learned from her how to daven Shimona Esrei, right? That we're supposed to daven it in a way where we hear ourselves, where it's audible, but we're not supposed to yell it out. The other parts of the davening we can actually say out loud, unless we're bothering somebody next to us, of course. That's also part of the equation, Right. Your ruchnius uh, is my gashmius. I have to be careful. You know. um, okay, so say the word slowly and out loud and concentrate on the simple meaning of the words. The simple meaning of the words. Just knowing what you're saying when you say baruch atah Hashem. And of course, if we did this through the whole Shemona Esrei, it would take us at least an hour. So even if you choose one line and this is what I would suggest, because Rabbi Shimshon Pincus tells us that the very beginning of the Shemona Esri, the very first brachas, beginning, Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu Velokei until Magen Avraham, the Rabbi Pincus explains that you're literally turning on the taps with that first bracha. Now, in olden times, if you said that bracha without any kavana. The halacha was that you had to go back to the beginning and start again. Because it was considered that you didn't do anything. And how are you going to ask God for things when you get to the request section if you didn't even turn on the tap? The idea is the beginning of the Shona Esra is we're turning on the taps, as we explained. Hashem is all giving. He just wants to send down Bracha, right? When we say mazal tov to people, what we really mean is you should have a good flow. Mazal comes from the word flow. It actually is the same word in English as nose, nozel, nuzzle. Uh, 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 you know, a hose has a nozzle, no, uh, no, nozzle, nozzle, a nozzle, right? 
So it's all connected. It comes from the Hebrew Shoresh. But when we say Mazal Tov, we're saying to people that good flow should continue to come down to you. Because the idea is, is that Hashem is constantly sending down this flow, but we are the ones that stop it up. We are the ones that do not allow it to reach us for all kinds of reasons, right? We don't believe it. We don't ask for it. As we said before, one of the uh, spiritual laws of nature is that, yes, Hashem is omniscient, omnipotent. He knows everything. He knows what we need. But the game is that unless you ask me for it, I'm not necessarily going to give it to you. I can't, I'm not just doing mental telepathy, you know, like husbands and wives, right? They say, I'm not a mind reader. You need to tell me, right? Maybe that's why Hashem gave us that difficulty in, in marriage even, you know, but you should know. Don't you know me already? Don't you know what I like and I don't like? You have to say it. No, you know, and that's the way Hashem set things up with us too. You have to ask for it. It's waiting for you. Roshim Shem Pinka says, the bracha is waiting for you. It's up there. It just wants to come down to you, but you have to turn on the taps. So again, today, because we are so small, we do not go back to the beginning of Shemona Esrei if we haven't said it properly because I don't know if we ever say it properly, really. <laughs> but that's the idea. That's, that, that, that just drives home the point of how important this first part of Shemona Esri is, so that if you want to have Kavana at any part, any place, this is the place to do it. And as we know, everything follows from the head, right? Everything follows from the first. So if you get that first bracha with a little bit of kavana, understanding what you're saying, uh, listening to your words, being in the moment, being mindful, not allowing yourself to be thinking of your grocery list or just, uh, you know, I got to get this over with. If you do that, even just for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, it will set the tone for all the rest of the Shemona Esri. Okay. And it's small steps, ladies. It's small steps. But the more we get accustomed to it, the more we just get into the groove. We're just in the groove more and more quickly. Okay? okay. I mentioned before um, that you should direct your, heart, your, your words towards Yerushalayim. The general way to daven is with a sitter, with your eyes down, but your heart, so to speak, up. Your heart open to Hashem with your eyes down. Now, you are allowed to daven without a sitter, but your eyes should be closed if you don't have a sitter in front of you. Again, empty your mind of mundane thoughts. Gently push them away. Don't fight with them because then they come back even stronger. And, you know, this, this is not so much for Shimona Esri, but this is just in general. You know, if you're davening... Uh, for, sorry, Judy, can you mute yourself on air? Oh, sorry, sorry. That's sorry. okay. Um, if you're davening words before Shimona Esri, if you're saying Shema or you're saying some of the Psuke de Zimra or you daven everything, there's nothing wrong when a Pasuk hits you or you really like it or it's speaking to you for you to say it over and over again you know, sort of meditate on it. 
And I, I heard recently Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was interviewed, Zechat Tzadik Levracha, and they asked him, you know, what part of davening do you find difficult? Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg from uh, Boca Raton asked him that question when he was interviewed in his podcast, Behind the Bima. And he said he finds davening very difficult. It's very, very difficult. And he says, but what he tries to do is to focus on one pasuk, one sentence that week and sort of really think about it. And that's how he um, conquers the difficulty of having proper kavana through the whole thing. He feels that even if he got one thing that he thought about, that it was a success. It was a good davening. Okay. You should use the language that you understand. Even though we know that using the Hebrew language is ideal because obviously it's Lashon HaKodesh and it's the Lashon that our ancestors used. Although I want to show you, I want to read to you something because we asked last week, why is it that we daven from a sitter? Isn't it better to just use your own words? So, you know, we talked about the idea that when the Anshe Knesset HaGadola, the men of the Great Assembly, who, who wrote the sitter for us and, and codified it, we, I, I, I mentioned to you that the Jewish people had been exiled specifically to Persia, and they no longer remembered Hebrew. So I actually found the source for this. It's in the Mishnah Torah um, by the Rambam, Laws of Prayer, Book of Love of Hashem. It says, when the Jews were exiled in the days of the wicked Nebuchadnezzar, they were scattered to Persia, Greece, and other nations. The children they had in these foreign lands spoke a confused blend of various languages. Sounds like us, right? <laughs> they could not express themselves clearly in any one language. When anyone prayed, he could not praise God or ask for his needs without mixing his Hebrew with other languages. When Ezra and his court saw this, they arranged the order of the 18 brachas, the Shemona Esrei. The first three brachas are praising God. The last three brachas are thanking. The brachas in between contain requests for all personal and communal needs. Now everyone could learn the prayers and have them at their fingertips. Individuals with limited vocabularies could pray as well as more articulate people. The reason the text for all the brachas and prayers was formulated was to help all of Israel, even people with a limited vocabulary, be able to pray fluently. And of course, there were times in Jewish history when people were, not, were illiterate in Hebrew, and that's why you had Hazar's Hashats, why the Shemona Esri would be repeated, so that people who couldn't daven would at least have the benefit of the communal uh, davening the second time. There's other reasons for it too, but that's one of the reasons. Um, okay. So when we pray with kavana, again, the word kavana is from the word kivun, direction, right? We say that uh, uh, prayer is compared to a bow, like an arrow, uh, an arrow and a bow, that the further you pull back the bow, the farther the arrow flies. So the more you put your, so to speak, when you pull back the arrow, your arm is very close to your heart. And prayer is called avodat shebalev, that it's a work, a service to God that involves the heart. And we know how many times in the Torah and in the Nabi 
Hashem says, I don't want your lip service. It doesn't mean anything to me, right? But I want the heart. And there's a beautiful story of a little boy who didn't know how to pray. And he was just yelling in shul, Aleph, Gimel, hey. And, you know, somebody came over or whatever. He was feeling very ignorant that he didn't know how to pray. And somebody said, don't worry, because you're praying with your heart, Hashem will rearrange the letters of the words and bring your prayers up to heaven. So again, the most important part of prayer is that it somehow en it engages our heart, and it's probably the most difficult part of prayer too, that we should sweat and have tears, right? Tears are the sweat of the soul, and it's as if we're bringing a sacrifice to Hashem, which is really ourselves. Okay, let's go back into the Shemona Esther. I have another save it for next week because it's just so great but it's too long and I don't want to read because reading can only do so much of that get away with it okay so last week we were already beginning right we said Hashem Elokeinu we said Baruch Hashem you God are the source of all blessing Elokeinu you are our God meaning you're not a distant God you're a very personal God you're the God of Avraham. You're the God of Yitzchak. Ve Eloke Yaakov. I just thought it was interesting. Why does Yaakov get the Ve Eloke? Um, so the Vav represents six, which is this, this world that has six directions. And because Yaakov was the only of the Avod who had 12 perfect sons, he, so to speak, sanctified God completely in this world. Right? I said that his face is considered to be on the Kisei HaKavod, the, the throne of glory that God sits on. Yaakov's face is engraved on that. Because Yaakov of all the Avot um, combined the love that Avram Avinu brought into the world, the Chesed that is always um, corresponding to love. Yitzhak brought in the Pachad, the fear, which is also an incredibly important ingredient in developing one's relationship with God, right? Because I said so, basically God says to us, just like a parent, and I know better than you, so do what I tell you, or else, right? I'm counting to three. Um, and then, of course, Yaakov, who was the perfect blend of this love and fear, because we said at two extreme, chesed, turns into decadence, turns into spoiling the bra, you know, spoiling the bra, spoiling the child. Too much of a degree of discipline can turn into cruelty and hard-heartedness. But the proper blend of love and fear together is called truth and emet and beauty, tiferet. And that's what Yaakov Avinu brought into the world. And that's why he gets the L-O-K. Okay, so let's go on. Hakel, Hagadol, Hagibur, Vahanora, Kel, Elyon. So this first, okay, maybe I'll say that after. So again, we're going back corresponding to the Avot here. So first we're just saying God is Hakel. He is, he is power. He is the most powerful thing in this world. On the other hand, the word Hakel also represents the idea of Midas Arachamim, that as powerful as he is, as easily as he could blink his eyes, so to speak, and destroy the entire world, 
right? Or just stop willing the world into being for even one second and we would disappear, okay? He doesn't do that because he's also a God of Rachamim, of mercy and compassion. That's what Kale is, okay? But then we go on, Hagadol Hagibor Vahanorah. And again, Gadol corresponds to Avraham. Hagadol. How is he Gadol? He's Gadol because he is the master of kindness. You know, Avram Avinu recognized God through the kindness, through the beauty, through the goodness in the world. That's how he experienced God. And that's why his whole manifestation of God was by teaching us things like um, hospitality to guests, right? Fighting for the people of Sodom, you know, and, you know, offering himself and people around him. He's the one who went out there. He was externally oriented. He went out to bring people close to God. He was the first Kiru personality, right? Because by the way, there were other people who were God believers at the time. We all know there was shame and Aver, right? And they even had a yeshiva. But what differentiated shame, who was the son of Noah, right? Was that they were in their ivory tower, learning Torah, whatever that meant at that time. But they were not proselytizing. They were not going out to find converts. Avraham went out. He was the one who went out and gathered students to teach them about the one God. So he really was a Kiru personality. And that represents the Chesed. And that is Hagadol, which is the one who has great kindness. Gibor represents power again and fear. Pachad. Pachad Yitzchak. Yitzchak is awe. Yitzchak is fear. Yitzchak is trembling. Yitzchak is the ultimate yira, which means the word yira, fear, comes from the word liro, to see, right? If you could see God with your eyes, you would stand back in tremendous awe, you know, not being able to speak. At the awesomeness. Okay? And Norah represents Yaakov. Veha Norah. When Yaakov came to the place where he, where the base of Mikdash would eventually be built, where he had the dream of the ladder, he said, Ma Norah hamakom hazeh. How awesome, how awe-inspiring is this place that I am, that I just spent the night. He was so shocked, you know, that he was sleeping in such a place when he realized where he was, when he had the dream of the ladder. And Yaakov, of course, represents the combination of the love and the fear. And that's what Norah means. And then with all of that explanation of God, Gadol, Gibor, Vahanorah, we end by saying, Kel Elyon. We can't really describe you, Hashem. You are a God that is so beyond description. That even though we use these words, Hakel Gadol Hagibor Vahanorah, you're Kael Elyon. You are too, too beyond us to be able to use words to even come to understand. But whatever small thing that we can grasp of you, 
these are the words we're going to use. It also implies this idea of Kel Elyon, that you are the God that we will never understand when it comes to tragedy in this world. Rav Schwab wrote a lot about the Holocaust. I don't know, I don't know if he, he was in the Holocaust. I think maybe he, I'm not sure if he left Germany before or he went through it. But the point is, is he said things like tragedies, children being born with disabilities, any kind of tragedies in the world, things that really puzzle us when it comes to thinking about God, that's part of Kel Elyon. We will never be able to understand and explain such things. And of course, the example he gives is the Holocaust. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. But then we're followed with Gomel Chasadim Tovim. You're the God who dispenses kindness, right? Who bestows not just Chasadim, but why do we need to say Chasadim Tovim? Isn't Chesed always good? Why do we need that extra word? Remember, every single word was chosen with Ruach HaKodesh, with the Divine Spirit. They were like Navim. They had a very clear channel when they were creating this prayer. We said that it's like a modem, that you say these words and you press click. We don't know how it works, but it goes straight up to heaven, right? We don't know how the computer works, but we press click and it goes. So why Gomel Chasadim Tovim? So one idea is that when human beings do chesed, you know, sometimes it's mixed with our own little personal uh, stuff, you know, our guilt. Sometimes we do chesed and it's not necessarily good for the person. Really, we needed gavura in that situation. We shouldn't have given them, but we gave because it made us feel better. It alleviated our guilt. It got, made us feel more comfortable. When God gives, it's always good. When God does chasadim, they only good. And also back to Kelayon, even though God sometimes appears harsh, in these areas of life that we will never understand, the tragedies, the Holocaust type of phenomenon, right? However, we have to understand that every second of our lives, he bestows favors upon us, and we can never adequately express our gratitude for them. There's an amazing story about Rav Shach. You probably heard it. It was very popular many years ago. Rav Shach. Zatzal, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Panovich. He one day when he was, I think, in his 80s, he called a, a driver, someone to pick him up, and he asked his grandson to come with him. And his grandson said, Zadie, where are we going? It was a terrible day. It was raining. It was blowy. He was old. He was not, you know, he was feeble. And his grandfather said, I want to go to a funeral in Haifa. So the grandson was very confused. He said, Haifa, like, who, who died? Like, you're going to somebody. I never heard that any great person was Nifter, that you would know that you would go to, you know, and, and, he, and he, you know, wondered who it was. But of course, he said, Zadie, of course, I'll come with you. Anyway, they drove all the way up to Haifa, and they come to the Feld, and there's like a few people standing at the Feld. And again, it's obviously not somebody famous, not some great Rosh Hashiva, not, nobody. 
And this grandson is very puzzled and Rav Shach goes over and there's barely a minion there. And anyway, when they're leaving and the driver is waiting for them to come back to the car, as they're coming back to the car, Rav Shach, before getting into the car, stands outside in the cold and the rain and the wind for another 30 seconds before getting back in the car. And his grandson is so, totally perplexed. And finally, on the way home, back to B'nai he says to his Zadie, who was that? Why did you risk your health to go to such a funeral? And... And why did you stand outside in the cold more than you had to? Why didn't you just get back in the car, Zadie? So basically the story was that Rav Shach said, when I was a young yeshiva man in Poland, you know, the conditions of the yeshiva were terrible. We slept on cold, hard benches. We hardly had anything to eat. And one day my uncle, who, had a, uh, who was a blacksmith, sent word to me, that I should come, I should join him in his blacksmith business, he would apprentice me, and I would learn the trade. And I had made a decision that night that I was leaving, that I couldn't take the, the, the conditions anymore in the yeshiva, and I was going to go to become a working man. And he said, the next morning, there was a woman whose husband had been a traveling salesman who had died the night before. And this woman had all of the all of the merchandise that this man used to sell. Her husband used to sell, and among the merchandise were these incredibly warm feather blankets. And she came to the yeshiva that morning, and she wanted to donate them to the yeshiva. So, because of that woman, he said, "I was given one of those blankets. I ended up changing my mind." I didn't join my uncle, and I stayed in yeshiva. And he said, this woman was that woman whose funeral we went to. And I wanted to go there to show my hakara tatov, my gratitude, because if not for her, I would never have become who I became today. Okay, Zadie, but why did you have to stand out there in the cold after we left? He said, because I wanted to feel the cold. I wanted to really and deeply feel the kind of gratitude that I owed that woman before I got into the car and remember again that how because of her kindness, the whole trajectory of my life was changed, was altered. So that's the great people, right? They don't forget any kindness and the the degree that Rav Shach would go to to honor this woman obviously is a lesson for all of us. Okay, so Gomer Chasadim Tovim Vekonei Hakol. You own everything. You own everything. Not only do you own everything, but you own us. We are part of your acquisitions, right? We are part of that what you own, and therefore we can't offer you anything, Hashem. What can we offer you? You own everything. You remember the kindness of the fathers. What does that mean, chaste avos? What kindness did the fathers do? Of course, we're referring to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. You remember the kindness of the fathers. 
So one is the idea that the Avot kept the Torah before the Torah was even given, right? They somehow, Avram had figured out the mitzvot, what was commanded of him, what, you know, we know that Avram used to make matzah at Pesach time, even before the Jews went into Mitzrayim, right? Because the idea is, is that the Torah came before the event. The Torah was the events. How do I explain this? That we had a mitzvah of eating matzah before we even went into Egypt. We had to go into Egypt and able to acquire this mitzvah of eating matzah. Which doesn't mean necessarily that, that things couldn't have been different, but for some reason, eating matzah was going to be part of our, of our Torah. Maybe it would have happened in a different way if we had been able to avoid the going down to Egypt, but that's, you know, that's complicated. We're not going there. But let's just say that Abraham was eating matzah, that the Avot practiced the Torah before the Torah was given. And God saying, I remember that kindness that you did. And perhaps they didn't have to. Maybe it wasn't obligated at that time. But the point is that they did that when nobody else in the world was doing it. And um, it also means, avot. you remember the kindness of the avot, which is, we're, say, we're sort of hinting to Hashem, so therefore, remember us with kindness, because those avot, those are our great, 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 great grandparents. We're their enoklach, right? And even if we're not worthy of the kind of chesed you showed them, or the chesed that they did, simply for the fact that we come from them, we've got protectia, right? Give us for that sake alone, because my, my, my great, 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 great Zadie was Avram Avinu. And actually the next words, umevi goel. No, let me just finish this idea. So protexia means it's not what you know, but who you know, right? So there's two ideas here about Zohar Chastea Vot. Two ideas. One is, you should do kindness for me, Hashem, because I can reach very high levels because of the spiritual path that was blazed by my avot. But the second idea is this, that a person can only say these words, zocher chaste avot, that you should remember the kindness of, of my ancestors and therefore remember me only if a person prays in their merit and shows that by our behavior, we value what they valued. We're obligated to say, when will my deeds reach the deeds of my forefathers? And obviously we're talking about the foremothers too, right? Every Jew is supposed to ask himself, when will my deeds reach the deeds of my forefathers? And even though, of course, we fall short and we know how small we are compared to our ancestors, like midgets on the shoulders of giants, right? Yet, the way that a person gets uh, sort of protexia and little favors is by saying, I know I'm not, but I aspire to it. I want to be. I want to be like them. I want to embody the values and the goodness and the 
type of sacrifice and selflessness that they embodied in their relationship with you, Hashem. And just by wanting it, we're given it. We're given that kind of incredible merit. It says that Moshe used this idea of Zechut Avot, the merit of the forefathers, many times when praying for God to forgive the Jewish people. And the Rambam says that there was one time that he couldn't use it. And that was with the Chet Hamaraglim, the sin of the spies. So why couldn't he use it? It says because the whole sin of the spies was the idea that the Maraglim did not value the land of Israel the way they should have. And because the love of the land of Israel was something that the Avod instilled in us, right? Avram Lechlecha, he leaves his land to go there. Yitzchak never leaves Eretz Yisrael, right? He's considered a korban tamima. He has to stay in the land of Israel. There are people today who, if they were born in Israel, they never leave it. I had a friend in Jerusalem, if you can believe it. Her husband, who was such a big tzaddik, he died suddenly in his sleep. Allah v'shalom. He had a tradition in his family that if you were born in Jerusalem, you never left Jerusalem. How dare you leave such a holy place? You don't get to go. She'd never been to Eilat. She'd never been. Okay, she was, he, he wasn't mukfit on the rest of the family. They were allowed to go. But he had that minhag for himself. That is a minhag that some Yerushalmis have. But the point is, because the Meraglim did not hold the land of Israel dear, Moshe did not ask for them to be saved in the Zechut Avot, because they were not holding by the Avot's values. So we pray in their merit. And what we're saying is, overlook our shortcomings and failings. And remember, we have the potential to be great. Give us, not because we deserve it, but in the merit of our potential. We've got spiritual genes. You know, I always say when somebody says, you know, I can't believe it. We had a redhead in our family. Like, nobody's a redhead. Well, you know, maybe back in the day, maybe there was a great-grandmother who had red hair, right? And people dig deep enough and they find out that it's true because it obviously just doesn't come from nowhere. So the same way there's such a thing as spirit, as physical genes that all of a sudden will crop up after many generations we know that there's also an idea of spiritual genes, spiritual DNA, which we as Jews have all inherited from our Avot and our Imahot, right? One example is the fact that so many Jews from the simplest unlearned Jew throughout Jewish history have given up their lives, Lema'an Shemo, for the sake of God, right? They've, they've allowed themselves to be slaughtered rather than say, I believe in a different God, or I'll bow down. The story of Han and her seven sons. We're going to read that story soon, right? And they say, where does a Jew get the strength to be able to do that? It's only because we have the DNA of Yitzchak, who was going to allow himself to be a korban for Hashem. And I've said in other classes, if a Jew is lacking the trait of chesed, you should question his yichus. Maybe he doesn't come from Abraham. How could a Jew be so cruel? Okay, so we're saying, Hashem, remember that we come from that. Yeah, so here I just see here that I wrote, they kept the Torah before it was given and they weren't obligated to. 
So God saw this as a chesed because their love of Hashem was so great. I just want to show you something that I actually had from my Shema class, but it makes sense here. So this very first prayer that we're going to end in a minute is called the Avot, right? And the Avot, if you rearrange the letters, spell the words, word ve'ahavta, and you should love from the first word in Shema, because that was their message. The love that permeates the chesed, the love of all mankind, the desire to create a better world for everyone and bring the world to tikkun, which is the next part, right? And bring a redeemer to their children's children, meaning their grandchildren, meaning us. And that phrase is written in the present tense. It doesn't say, and you will bring a redeemer, or you did bring a redeemer. That every moment, including this pandemic, everything that we go through personally, communally, on a world macro level is all part of bringing the world to its completion, to its redemption. And even if we feel like we're taking three steps or two steps backwards, it's only for the sake of taking three steps forward. We are constantly moving in the direction of Geula. How do we know this? Because Hashem promised us that. And why should you do this? Why should you bring the Redeemer? The Ma'an Shemo Be'ahava, for the sake of his name in love, with love. So why should you bring the Redeemer? Not for us, Hashem, do it for yourself. Because as long as the Jewish people are in Galut, as long as the Jewish people are being tortured or persecuted, it's a diminishment of you. The Jewish people are the symbolic representative of God in this world. When your people are not at the top of the pile, when your people are not given the proper respect and honor that they deserve, when your people are the subject of brutality and anti-Semitism, then you, God, we want you to bring the Redeemer, not for ourselves, but for your sake, right? How often did, when, when, when God wanted to destroy the Jewish people, Moshe pleaded with him and said, what are the nations of the world going to say? They're going to say, God, you weren't powerful enough to keep the Jewish people alive. Or it's going to be such a busha, God, if your people are allowed to be destroyed. So do it for your sake. Bring the Geula for your sake. So every event, no matter how terrible, is a step towards the ultimate redemption. It's constantly ongoing. It's a process that's unfolding. As it says in Parakshira, that the darkest cloud has the most water. 
The darkest cloud contains the most water. Isn't that beautiful? Redemption occurs not only for us, but also for Hashem's name. Our greatness uncovers Hashem's greatness. We're God's representatives on earth. When we're exiled and degraded, Hashem's honor and glory are hidden from the world. So do it for the sake of yourself. Do it for the sake of your cover. Okay, let's continue. Melech, Ozer, Umoshia, Umagain. You are the king. And here we have three words that, that um, describe different kinds of help. Where's my... So Ozer means he helps you when you help yourself. When you are trying and striving to be better, right? God's only going to help those who help themselves. That's where the Jewish expression comes from, right? <laughs> so Ozer means he helps you if you help yourself. When you strive to be better, and it's also the idea that if not for God's help, there is no way any of us would ever be able to defeat the Yetzirah. You know, as someone, somebody, as myself, who is a Chosera Pichuva, a Balchuva, who really experienced the Yetzirah in a very frontal battle type of way, basically saying, you are, you have to be absolutely crazy to become religious. You have to be absolutely nuts. I mean, what's wrong with you? You're 24 years old and you're still looking for God? Like, get a life, you know? The battle that, and when you, when you, if any of you have ever had that experience and you've overcome, you know that there's no way you could have done it without God on your team. You know, we know there's a famous saying in the Gemara, God says, I created the Yetzir Hara, and I created the antidote. What's the antidote? Torah, right? Learning Torah, developing oneself, understanding Torah so that you can grow into a Torah personality. Without God, you know, God created the Yetzir Hara, he created the Yetzir Hatov. The Yetzir Hara is way stronger than the Yetzir Hatov. The only thing that tips the scale is that God goes on the Yetzer Hatov side with you. But otherwise, anyway, that's the idea. So help also refers to help in spiritual matters. We need siyata dishmaya. We need to daven for spiritual growth. We need to daven that our fields, before you even begin to daven, you should daven that you know how to daven, that you can daven, that you're inspired, that you can actually say the words and God helps you that the words actually come alive. We all know when we have a dovening like that, whether it's when you're at the hotel, right? When we just feel like we're not putting in any effort, but the words are flowing. There was a great rabbi who said, one of the ways that you know that your prayers are being received is when those words are just coming out like smooth, like in a relaxed way. I once heard too, if you sneeze during Shmonastre, <laughs> it means your prayers went right up. You know, it's like a great feeling when you sneeze a few times during Shimon Astray. <laughs> it's like, wow, I'm hitting the bullseye, you know. I don't know where that comes from, but <laughs> whatever. I'll take it, okay? Um, 
So ozer means, you know, we have to, we have to make the, do the, do it, but Hashem will help us. So I'll tell you a quick story about this guy, Dave, who uh, was in Israel. He went to Asia Torah. He was becoming interested in, you know, going back to his roots and he was keeping Shabbos. Of course, it was very easy in Israel because it's easy because everybody invites you and everybody's doing it. And you're on this, you know, you're on this journey and you're away from home and you can be whoever you want to be. But unfortunately, after he left Israel and went back to somewhere in Silicon Valley, California, he um, was pretty much alone and he wasn't in a community and he was trying to keep Shabbos on his own. And he was fine. And I have actually a woman, a friend right now who's becoming Hosera Pachuba. And she's in the same situation. She's surrounded by non from Israelis and she works in one of these Dead Sea places. And she was in Niagara on the Lake, and now she's in Edmonton. But Edmonton has more than Niagara on the Lake. And I keep telling her, you know, like, you're setting yourself up for failure. Like, it's hard. But she's really trying, and she really wants. And God willing, she'll succeed. And her father should have a Rafua Shalem, a Rafal Ben Elana. Um, but anyway, this guy Dave is keeping Shabbos, and it's getting harder and harder. And that's it. He can't take it anymore, okay? And he's got to turn on the TV. He just can't handle it. But before he turns on the TV, he says a little prayer to God. He says, listen, God, if you're really here, show me a sign. And he clicks on the TV. And the TV has the David Letterman show on it. And they're interviewing Tom Hanks. And Tom Hanks has just done a movie that was filmed in Israel. And at the moment he turns it on, David Letterman has just asked Tom Hanks, so, Tom, you were in Israel filming this movie. Did you learn any Hebrew? And, and Tom Hanks says, yeah, I did learn something, Dave. He said, well, why don't you tell us what you learned? So just as this guy turns on the TV, uh, Tom Hanks is basically looking straight out in, at the camera, straight out at this guy, who, by the way, his name was David. Okay? And he says, Shabbat Shalom, Dave. There you can imagine, if that wasn't a sign, right? Anyway, we're, the story is, is this guy is a rabbi today. I mean, no wonder, right? Now, that's what you call a little bit of Yira and a little bit of Ahava mixed together. So that was enough to, to, uh, to get him going. So Melach Ozer, so you have to want to help yourself. Let's see if we can finish this. I know we're at 1130. Um, there's two things that get in the way of our spiritual growth. Two notions that are counterproductive. One is I can do it myself. As I said before, no, you can't. If you don't ask Hashem for help, it ain't going to happen. You are not more powerful than the Yetzir Hara. You cannot do it. You have to ask for help. I'll tell you a quick story about myself because this was really the turning point of how I became religious. I, whatever, uh, Esther Shore is here. It's, it, it features her husband, Ephraim, who never gave up on me. Her husband became religious. We were together in Israel and we were 18 and he ended up at Asha Torah and I said, no thanks. And uh, it took me a few more years to, you know, get knocked in the head and realize uh, I took a wrong turn. But the point is, is that years later, after uh, uh, Ephraim had become religious, I was working in Toronto. I was in between jobs, and I was actually working for Asia Torah 
on Wilson in their tiny little place there. And they were very clever. Of course, they hired me because they figured they could work on me while I was, you know, making some money and typing for them or whatever. Meanwhile, they, um, Ephraim Shore, Rabbi Ephraim Shore, had developed this program called the Jerusalem Fellowships. It was the very first program where they were taking 80 students from Ivy League universities all across North America for a six-week trip to Israel. Very, very cheap. And you had to write essays about why you wanted to go. And anyway, he would call me every other day from his office in Israel to say, "New, no, are you coming? Are you going to go on this? And I would make up every excuse in the book. I'm not in university anymore. I'm too old for this. I can't go. I'm finally getting my life together. I'm, you know, I'm not searching for God anymore. It never, it's not, it's just not fun. Okay. I'm just, I, I'm finally, anyway, the point is, is I was in between jobs. I, I finally graduated University of Toronto and I was working in publishing. And my parents did not want me to go on this trip because I was a truth seeker. I, I was a God seeker and they were tired of my searches and they were so happy that I finally found myself. As I like to say, all who wander are not lost. But anyway, you know, I finally found myself and, and I was gonna be in publishing, which made so much sense. So I made up with my parents. I said, listen, I am going to look for a job in publishing during this two months before this trip is, okay? I'm going to put all my effort and I'm going to ozare. I'm going to, you know, help myself, right? But if I don't get a job by the time this trip goes, then I'm going on this trip because I really knew spiritually this was my last chance to try again to figure out how I wanted to live my life because that was always my question how to live my life in the most best way that a person could live it in this world. So I told my parents this, they, you know, they begrudgingly agreed. <laughs> what control did they have over me already? And, um, and I said, okay, anyway, I, I, you're not going to believe it. I still have it. I should have brought it. I, anyway, I opened up the uh, newspaper. I used to read my horoscope, of course, you know. I opened up my newspaper during this time period. I've gone on a few interviews. I went to Penguin Publishing, uh, you know, for, for, for publishing jobs. I open up my, my uh, horoscope. And there on my horoscope, it says, focus on spiritual values, publishing comma, publishing. I'm like, whoa, could you get any more specific than that? Right? It's like Shabbat Shalom, Dave, right? Publishing and spiritual values. And then it said possibility of travel. Okay, so I figured like God is like, and there was an idea that what you know, wherever we don't we don't believe in the horoscopes, we're above the stars, right? But the idea is that wherever you look for God sincerely, God will put himself there, right? He will put himself there so that you will find him if you are sincerely seeking. So he put himself in my horoscope. Okay, let's finish this because we want to get to the end. Ozer, Melech Ozer, Umoshia. What does Umoshia mean? Your savior. He's your savior, which means no matter how hard we try, we can't overcome certain situations. We're going to succumb over and over again. Right? We have a bad meta called anger. Or we're a pushover. We don't know how to be strong. We don't know how to say what we mean. We're not assertive. Right? We're too nice. 
whatever mita it is that we're afflicted with that doesn't help us, okay? When we recognize our helplessness and we say to Hashem, we can't do this ourselves, I can't do this, I'm trying to overcome my anger my whole life, and I always blow it, Hashem, come on, help me. Then he comes in, he swoops in. And when we recognize our helplessness, Hashem saves us. Magain. He's our protector. And that's really literally, he's Magain Avraham. Melech Ozer Moshiach Um Magain. And our shield, he protects us from those who endanger our lives. How many people who went through the Holocaust can tell you stories about how they just saw God's hand over and over again in their rescue. God's protection that was illogical, that didn't make any sense, right? And they were able to be able to tell the story of Hashem as Magain. When Hashem acts as helper and savior, he uses conventional natural means, but Magain means he uses a supernatural, supernatural means. And we end this bracha, Baruch Hashem, Magain Avraham. Why do we say Magain Avraham? So as I said in the earlier class, every single bracha of Shemona Esrei ends with something that the Malachim said at a certain event. They said this bracha, Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed are you God who is the shield of Avraham. When Avraham emerged unscathed from Nimrod's fiery furnace. Everybody knows the story, the Medrash, that Nimrod, who was the evil guy at that time, threw him into a furnace and said, let's see if your God will save you. And it says that Abram walked through the furnace, the furnace, and it turned into a garden, and he was unscathed. And when he came out, of course, Nimrod had to admit that this God was very, very powerful, right? That's one opinion. The other opinion is that um, the angel said this when he was battling the five kings, the war with the kings, when he was saving his nephew Lot, Lot God says there, fear not, Avraham, for I am your shield. Okay, we've got two more minutes for those, and then we'll be finished this bracha, okay? So, first of all, just an interesting thing that these words, Melech, refers to Rosh Hashanah. Ozer refers to the 10 days of tshuva. If you really want to do tshuva, I'll help you, but you have to help yourself. Moshia is Yom Kippur, where everybody gets a free cleansing just by showing up to shul and not eating. I'll save you even if you can't save yourself. And Magain is Sukkot, when we sit in the Sukkot and we say that our sukkah protects us, even with its flimsy roof and even with its shaky walls, that's our protection. That Hashem is our magain, Hashem is our shield, Hashem is our protection. So why do we end this prayer with Avram? Why don't we say magain Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov again? So Avraham we end with because in Lech there's a verse that refers to the Avot. It says, Hashem promises, I will bless you, right? I will bless you and those who bless you will be blessed. And this refers to Avraham. And then he says, I will make you into a great nation. And this refers to Yitzchak. And then he says, nations will bless you. And this refers to Yaakov. And then in the same Pasuk, he says, he ends, Hashem ends by saying, and you will be a blessing. 
you will be a blessing. You will literally be a blessing. We will say, Baruch HaTah Hashem, Magain Avraham. Magain Avraham also represents the Pintala Yid that's in every single Jew. That little pilot light that no matter how distant a Jew is from his Yiddishkeit, never, ever, ever goes out. It's always there. As covered over with filth as it might be, or, or ignorance, or a lack of feeling, it's never extinguished. And this began with Avraham. Avraham had a love of Hashem. We inherited this trait. It's the easiest attribute of all the Avot to relate to, right? We relate to this love, to positive energy, to kindness. There was a famous rabbi, I'm sure you heard of him, Rabbi Effie Buchwald, who started, turned Friday night into Shabbos. And he used to be, he was famous for saying, for the price of a chicken, you can make a Jew. That it's not philosophical argument that brings Jewish kids back to Yiddishkeit. It's not proving there's a God or there's no God. But when a Jewish person experiences the chesed, the hachdasat orchim, the kindness and goodness of the Jewish personality, that's enough to want to make him come back to his people. Okay, we finished the first bracha. You can use it to turn on the taps. It's your tap turning on bracha. So just picture yourself turning on the taps. If you can focus even on a few of the words, what we talked about, and just do that first bracha with kavana and everything else goes to pot, it's okay. It's a great start. Okay, so I wish all of you happy davening. If you're not davening, takes on something small. You know, you can do the first paragraph and stop. And again, just to, to, just in terms of the um, practicals, right? Baruch atah Hashem, that's when we bow. Baruch, because it relates to the word berach, knees, birkayim. We bend our knees at baruch. We, we bend down at atah. But we stand up straight when we're talking to Hashem, when we're addressing God again, because our greatness is that God created us upright with an incredible brain and the ability to speak, articulate speech at the top of our body. So we don't bow like the Muslims or bend like the Christians. We stand up straight when we're addressing God. And at the end, too, the same thing. Baruch atah. Hashem Magain Avraham. So we bow twice in that first bracha. Okay? All right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. What was that line again? Let's go tobogganing. Are you allowed to do that? Yeah, hello. Deborah, what was that? Not allowed? Well, I'll wear a scarf, that's for sure. Can you hear me, Devorah? Yeah, I can hear you. Hi, Kim. Hi, hi, beautiful. What was that great line you just said? For the price of a chicken, you can... For the price of a chicken, you can make a Jew. Love. Yeah. Thank you. Love that. Yeah. Oh, nice to hi, see Susan. you. Hi, Susan. Nice you. to see you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Okay, thank well, thank you, you for joining me. Devorah, that was fabulous. Thank Thanks, you. Esther. Fabulous. Love you. I'm so You're happy great. to see you. So thank happy you. to see you. you. Oh, I better turn off too. this recording. Oh, my God.